International Court of Justice rules on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Find out what the court is requiring Israel to do and how Israel responds. Seattle settles excessive force lawsuits with Black Lives Matter protesters. Demonstrators took control of a six-block zone back in 2020. We got the details. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says jobs are up for black Americans, but CNN commentator Van Jones says the numbers don't tell the whole story, and Biden goes to the swing state of Wisconsin. Russia today extending pre-trial detention for an American journalist for the fourth time. We bring you the details on the charges and his detention. And we take a walk through the Upper East Side of Manhattan on a guided tour of some top cultural spots and local gems with a seasoned real estate broker who has deep roots in the city. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, an idle van at an intersection near the White House this morning. Police in Washington, D.C. blocked streets and redirected traffic to investigate the vehicle. A heavy police presence is seen at the site. Officers cordoned off the area with police tape, causing disruption for commuters. The burgundy-colored vehicle was later moved away. The cause of the incident remains unknown. We'll keep you updated on that situation. And happening right now, a Hunter Biden business associate is testifying in Congress. Rob Walker is appearing for a transcribed interview behind closed doors. He's testifying before lawmakers from the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees. This comes as part of the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. GOP committee leaders say Walker was, quote, used as a vehicle to receive foreign funds and send a percentage of the money to Biden's family members. The lawmakers say Walker was able to do that through his company, Robinson Walker, LLC. Walker's accused of sending millions to the Biden family from a Romanian businessman and a Chinese energy company. And over to the border showdown where tensions between the federal government and the state of Texas keep rising. More and more Republican governors from across the nation now say they stand behind Texas in its battle against the Biden administration. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem on Fox News explained why she'll continue supporting the Lone Star State. Governor Abbott has done the exact right thing, and I'll drive him more razor wire from South Dakota if I have to for him to do his job. We will be Europe within a year or two, if we allow President Biden to continue this invasion of our country, over six million people have come here illegally. It is time to stand our ground and we'll be down there standing shoulder to shoulder with Governor Abbott. 25 Republican governors releasing a joint statement in support of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. They say the federal government is failing to protect the border, which is why Texas now has to step up. This comes after Abbott officially announced he will not follow the Biden administration's request to vacate the border. Instead, he's claiming the state's constitutional right to defend itself against an invasion. In response, some Democrats have called on Biden to seize control of the Texas National Guard. The former President Trump is also weighing in on the issue. He said other states should now send their National Guardsmen to Texas. That's to prevent the entry of illegal immigrants and to remove them and send them back across the border. 
Trump said Texas rightly invoked the invasion clause and that current immigration numbers are posing a risk to national security, public safety, and public health. He also called on the American people to support Texas. And the United Nations top court has issued an interim ruling in the case against Israel. South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza and asked the International Court of Justice to order a ceasefire. By 15 votes to two, the state of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention. The court declined South Africa's demand to order an immediate ceasefire, but judges demanded that Israel try to contain death and damage in Gaza. The court decided not to throw out the case and ordered six so-called provisional measures to protect Palestinians during the war. The decision today is only a preliminary one. It could take years for the full case to be considered. Israel rejects the genocide accusation and had asked the court to throw the charges out. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reacted to the ruling. He said Israel would continue to do what is necessary to defend itself. The Hague Court rightly rejected the outrageous demand to deprive us of this right. But the claim itself that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians is not just false, it is outrageous, and the Court's willingness to discuss it at all is a mark of disgrace that will not be erased for generations. And here to offer his insights into the court's decision is Gerard Felitti, senior counsel at the Lawfare Project. Gerard, how might the court's ruling impact what's happening on the ground in Gaza, if at all? In practical terms right now, the court's ruling will not impact what's going on on the ground. Israel has maintained steadfastly that it is complying with the international rules uh, of war and that it is not committing genocide. The ICJ's obligation, it's in its its preliminary measures that Israel safeguards civilian life and not commit genocide is exactly what Israel has been doing. Allowing humanitarian aid into Gaza is exactly what Israel has been doing. So in practical terms, this ruling has no immediate effect on Israel's conduct of operations in Gaza. And now the court has also called for the immediate release of the remaining hostages held in Gaza. Um, how might this, or held by Hamas at least, how might this impact diplomatic efforts considering now that the, the U.S. is starting up those talks uh, with Qatar and Mossad? Well, we, we've seen ongoing talks. We know that the CIA director is, is in Qatar discussing uh, terms for a, uh, a drawdown to, of a humanitarian pause and the release of all the remaining hostages. So we see that as something that is on the horizon, especially after Israel completes its campaign now in Khan Yunus. Uh, the international court's involvement in this also puts pressure on Hamas and on the partners in developing a ceasefire or a humanitarian pause to recognize that the international community opposes uh, the holding of these hostages and that they need to be released. Now, some are dubbing or you know calling what the court has decided a, a win for Israel in the court with, uh, with the United Nations, a rare win. Uh, how do you think this decision and this ruling could impact international perceptions uh, and also create legal precedents? 
Well, in, in some ways, it is a win because the measures that South Africa wanted, a ceasefire, the, the withdrawal of troops, a condemnation of Israel as committing genocide, that did not happen. What did happen was implicit recognition that Israel has the right to defend itself within the guidelines of international law. So in that perception, it is a win for Israel. However, the bigger issue is the ICJ, the International Court of Justice, is a United Nations body, and it rarely acts apart from the biases of the members of the United Nations, who we have seen to be be, in many instances, corrupt, biased against Israel, and harboring anti-Semitism. So we harbor no illusion that the ultimate judgment may very well not be favorable towards Israel, and the fact that the tribunal is being given so much credit is not necessarily a good thing because it endangers international stability and the right of countries to defend themselves. And there is some divide among the international community as to this assessment of whether Israel may be committing genocide or not in uh, in Gaza, how do you think that this this ruling could impact that opinion? I think this ruling will just perpetuate the same beliefs that we've seen before. The countries and the people that stand against Israel and believe it's committing genocide will continue to harbor that delusion, whereas the people who support Israel and its democracy and its ability to defend itself will continue to do so. This really doesn't change anything. What this does is add more more vigor, more energy, and more passion to the discussion. And ultimately, that's not a good thing. We see that translating into violent protests on city streets across the U.S. and Europe. Uh, people, pro-Hamas sympathizers, using any excuse uh, to target the Jewish community. So ultimately, all this media attention on claims, on false claims that Israel is committing genocide is not good for social order. All right, Gerard Felidi, Senior Counsel at the Lawfare Project. Thank you so much. Thank you. And zooming out out of that music festival, Israel estimates that Hamas killed about 1,200 people on October 7. Victims of that attack included Americans, Israeli Arabs, and even Thai and Nepalese laborers. Farms were abandoned overnight with their harvests left to rot. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on thousands of volunteers giving local farmers a helping hand. Mark Landsman could have been spending his winter vacation in the Caribbean. Instead, he's picking tomatoes in southern Israel, within striking range of Hamas rockets. I was walking around my school and people were saying, where are you going for vacation? I'm sure you're going to go to Florida, maybe the Bahamas, maybe on a cruise. And I said, no, I'm going to Israel. And they said, why would you want to go to a war front? And I said, I just feel like I want to be part of this and help out and, and just do my part. To Many of Israel's farm laborers have been Thai and Nepalese, but a number of them were evacuated after the war started. According to the Jewish National Fund, more than 145,000 foreign volunteers have come to Israel since war broke out. Israel's agriculture ministry reports a shortfall of some 30,000 workers. The farmers could not survive without the help of the volunteers. The volunteers are, they, they're filling the gap and they're, they're, they're crucial to the agricultural world in Israel. Um, without them, the, many farmers would collapse. Volunteers work near the border with Gaza and in the north by the Lebanese border. Well, we chose to come to Israel to help because it's hard to sit at home in Los Angeles and watch what's happening and not want to do something. And this was something we could do to come and help whoever needed help. Volunteers are shown the nearest bomb shelter and are instructed to lie down and cover their heads if rocket sirens sound. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. This Saturday marks the International Holocaust Remembrance Day.
The United Nations designated January 27th as Remembrance Day as a way to honor the anniversary when Allied troops liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp. It was one of many such camps set up by Nazi Germany for the purpose of carrying out genocide and forced labor mainly against Jewish people. Roughly six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. On its website, the U.S. Holocaust Museum says we can all mark the day by, quote, sharing the truth of the Holocaust and by confronting anti-Semitism and hate in our daily lives. Coming up, Seattle settles a lawsuit with Black Lives Matter protesters agreeing to pay millions of dollars. Find out the details. Three strikes and you're out, or behind bars for the rest of your life. Kentucky lawmakers advance a sweeping crime bill. How this bill might stop repeat offenders from committing violent crimes. A unique initiative from Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s presidential campaign. How it's related to the physical and mental fitness of other contenders. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. Join us on NTD Good Morning because we want you to stay informed. Kickstart your morning with the latest you missed overnight. Right, and don't forget that inspiration. Absolutely, so let's shine some light on the good news too. Tune in every weekday morning to NTD News. $10 million, that's the amount Seattle has agreed to pay 50 Black Lives Matter demonstrators to settle a lawsuit. The plaintiffs accused the police department of using excessive force during the 2020 riots. They were among tens of thousands of people who gathered downtown and in the Capitol Hill area for weeks after the death of George Floyd. During this time, protesters set up the Capitol Hill occupied protest, taking control of a six block zone. To break up the crowds, police used things like flash bang grenades, foam tipped projectiles and blast balls that explode and release pepper gas. The city acknowledged no wrongdoing, but said the case was a significant drain on resources. Harsher penalties for crimes in Kentucky. The state's House advanced a bill that would put repeat offenders behind bars for the rest of their lives. House Bill 5 would require life in prison without the possibility of parole for committing three violent felonies in Kentucky. The bill also aims to crack down on fentanyl dealers who contribute to overdose deaths. It would allow for the death penalty or life in prison without parole for knowingly selling fentanyl if it results in a fatal overdose. The bill is now heading to the Republican-led state Senate. It's part of a sweeping plan to combat crime. And a group of two dozen Pennsylvania state lawmakers are challenging an executive order related to voting that was signed by President Biden in 2021. The executive order told federal agencies to find ways to expand voter access to registration and information about voting. The state lawmakers filed a federal lawsuit yesterday challenging the legality of three voting-related executive branch actions that aimed to boost voter registration. The lawsuit also challenges two state-level actions. One is last fall's introduction of automatic voter registration by Democratic Governor Josh Shapiro. The other is a 2018 state directive under then-Democratic Governor Tom Wolf. The group says the Elections Clause and the elect Electors Clause of the U.S. Constitution gives state lawmakers the sole, the sole constitutional right to determine the manner of elections. The 24 Pennsylvania Republicans are also asking the judge to issue an order that would stop the president, governor, or state executives from making future changes to the elections process by usurping the state lawmakers' authority. 
the latest from the Republican race. Trump secures endorsement from another lawmaker, and the former president comes out against the draft RNC resolution declaring him presumptive nominee. Here's more. Trump moves ever closer to the Republican nomination for president. After his victories in Iowa and New Hampshire, already in the lead, Trump continues to pick up endorsements from Capitol Hill. Louisiana Senator John Kennedy became the latest to back the former president on Wednesday. In a post on X, the Republican lawmaker said it's going to be Trump versus Biden and called it a choice between hope and more hurt. On Thursday, a draft resolution was introduced in the Republican National Committee, or RNC. It would have officially declared Trump the Republican Party's presumptive nominee. But the former president came out against the resolution for the sake of party unity. He said on Truth Social that he wants to finish the process off the old-fashioned way, at the ballot box. The resolution was subsequently withdrawn. The RNC also clarified that this was just a resolution and not the stance of the committee. Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign is launching a physical workout challenge for voters. This is in response to concerns over President Biden and former President Trump's advanced age. American Values 2024, a super PAC supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is promoting a workout challenge for voters. The goal is to have a healthier America and get Americans to be active for at least 24 minutes a day in 2024. Kennedy is known for being public about his physical workouts. This is while President Biden and former President Trump face criticisms over their advanced age and mental wellness. Recently on the campaign trail, Trump mixed up the names of his GOP challenger Nikki Haley and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This led Haley to question Trump's mental fitness. Haley has advocated for mental competency tests for older politicians. He said multiple times that he ran against President Obama. He didn't run against President Obama. These things happen because guess what? When you're 80, that's what happens. You're just not as sharp as you used to be. Trump responded to the criticism, saying that his mind is stronger now than it was 25 years ago, when he was Haley's age, 52. But a few months ago, I took a cognitive test. My doctor gave me. I said, give me a cognitive test just so we can, you know, because you know what the standards were. And I aced it. I also took one when I was in. But I also took one when I was in the White House. Kennedy is 70 years old, while Trump is 77, and Biden is 81. Throughout his presidency, Biden has faced criticisms over his age and mental fitness following gaffes on camera. The House Ethics Committee said yesterday it's stopping the inquiry into Congressman Jamal Bowman. It also issued a report on the incident. Bowman pulled a fire alarm at the Capitol complex last fall as lawmakers prepared to vote on a measure to avert a government shutdown. The decision came a month after the House voted to censure the New York Democrat. He also pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor offense after being charged by the D.C. Attorney General. House Ethics Committee Chairman Michael Guest said continuing to review Bowman's conduct wouldn't be practical since he was already censured and complied with his sentencing agreement. Bowman said he mistakenly pulled the last, last September alarm while rushing to the vote on the stopgap bill. Some Republicans have accused him of trying to delay the vote on purpose, but the committee's report did not substantiate those claims. Coming up, the U.S. Federal Trade Commission targeting the deals among Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and AI providers. What's behind this? And that and more when we return. 
Russia today extending pre-trial detention for an American journalist for the fourth time. The details on the charges. Farmer protests in France are reaching Paris. The government now rushing to avoid the complete stop of traffic, traffic around the nation's capital. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. President Biden and Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen both spoke yesterday in glowing terms about the U.S. economy. But a recent poll on the economy shows many aren't feeling their optimism. So where's the disconnect? Entity's Daniel Monahan has more on their speeches and one commentator's viewpoint on the data. Hello, Wisconsin. President Biden traveled to the critical swing state of Wisconsin Thursday to highlight the latest GDP report and tout his stewardship of the economy. The nation's economy grew at a 3.3% annual pace from October through December, as Americans showed a continued willingness to spend freely despite high interest rates and price levels that have frustrated many households. Just last week, we saw the biggest jump in 30 years in how positive consumers are feeling about the economy. Things are finally beginning to sink, and we passed a lot of really good legislation. Biden says his administration's legislation is taking hold now and turning the economy around. The president made his case by reading off newspaper headlines. Second headline, the U.S. economy boomed in 2023. Third, U.S. economy grew at a shocking pace. I love that shocking pace, Pete. Biden also claimed economic growth was stronger than during the Trump administration. Over in Chicago, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said Biden's approach to the economy has produced the fairest recovery on record. She said this is reflected in gains in the middle class and across demographic groups. Such as the rapid decline in unemployment rates for black and Hispanic Americans. Despite the improvements cited by Yellen, polling by Fox News shows support for Biden among black Americans has dropped by 25 percent since 2021. CNN commentator Van Jones said those talked about job gains in the black community are low-quality jobs. Jones says facts and feeling are very different. People keep telling me, well, you know, you've got you know, great uh, employment numbers in the black community and aren't you happy? I'm like, yeah, but they're crappy jobs. Meanwhile, a new poll from the Pew Research Center released Thursday says only 13 percent of Republicans and GOP-leaning independents say the economy is good or excellent. Overall, about 30% of Americans say the economy is excellent or good. Around 30% feel they are poor, and about 40% say the economy is only fair. The numbers are considerably better with Democrats. 44% of Democrats and those leaning Democrats say the nation's economy is excellent or good. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. The grounding of Boeing's 737 MAX 9 planes cost Alaska Airlines about $150 million. That's after the door plug on one of those planes blew off mid-flight. Joining us now to discuss is NTD business host Don Ma. Don, thank you for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Now, $150 million, that's a ton of money to state the obvious. But can the airline survive after taking a hit like this? Well, yes, uh, the, the loss is significant to the size uh, of that, such as Alaska Air. Um, so the airline reported earnings on Thursday, and, that, and it said that uh, profit is going to be $150 million shorter 
for the year 2024. And this is, as you mentioned earlier, due to the grounding of the aircraft. Um, and it was for more than two weeks, actually, that uh, 737 MAX 9's aircrafts weren't able to fly. Um, so Alaska has the second most 737 MAX jets in its fleet with 65. So it's no wonder that uh, such an impact is being seen here. And the first, by the way, is United. Uh, so only Alaska and United are the airlines that use these uh, jets. So the cost to Alaska Air is primarily from lost revenue. And this is because it has to cancel around 3,000 flights because of that grounding. Uh, but Alaska does have some options uh, to, at its disposal. Uh, for example, it could potentially pass on those costs, uh, for example, the $150 million onto Boeing. Um, but its CFO said that currently there's no plans just yet for that compensation. So we'll just have to wait and see. Now, considering their loss, what does Alaska's 2024 profit look like? Right. So uh, with that loss, Alaska said it's it expecting 2024 profit to be around $130 million to $600 million. Uh, but this is uh, a bit short of expectations. Um, and Alaska could also uh, Alaska is also casting doubt on increasing its capacity uh, to target because of the grounding, of course, and due to uh, potential future delays of shipments of, uh, of aircraft. Um, but, you know, despite all this, uh, during an uh, investor call yesterday when uh, th they were asked if they would continue their partnership with Boeing in the sense that are they going to continue to only buy Boeing aircraft? And the CEO said it seems like that they will continue buying only uh, Boeing aircraft uh, because the CEO said they have a long-standing and deep relationship with Boeing, so it seems like they may not want to change that. And while you're here with us, uh, let's move on to another topic. So the US, a U.S. antitrust inquiry is targeting open AI. What can you tell us about that? Right. So on that front, the U.S. Uh, Federal Trade Commission said uh, yesterday that it had ordered OpenAI, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Anthropic to provide information on recent investments and partnerships involving generative AI companies, and as well as cloud service providers. So the FTC orders will allow the agency to scrutinize the inner workings of the deals among Microsoft, Google, Amazon, and AI pro providers. And the aim here is to help the antitrust and consumer protection agency understand how these deals have affected competition and the extensive document uh, requests uh, seeks details on how the partnerships with big tech influence strategy and decisions around the pricing of products and services. So just a quick one there. Great, thank you so much for that update, Don. Thank, thank you. you, Don. Next up, the Defense Department is keeping the training of Ukrainian troops going despite no money left for aid. Nearly 1,600 Ukrainian troops are currently in training programs in Europe and the U.S. In Germany, thousands of troops are taking part in weapons training, leadership courses, and reconstitution training. In Arizona, a small number of Ukrainian pilots are undergoing training to fly F-16 fighter jets. The Biden administration is urging lawmakers to approve a new $61.4 billion supplemental aid package for Ukraine. The U.S. has trained around 18,000 Ukrainian troops in different programs. A coalition of countries has trained more than 118,000. 
The reconstruction of Ukraine has long been the subject of heated debates in the south of a, the country. A village head took matters into his own hands and brought almost 80 families back to their home. Vladimir Petroshin is head of a village that was in the middle of a battlefield. His tiny town in Ukraine's south, called Zaria, was caught in the currents of Russia's invasion in 2022. There was constant shelling and fire from phosphorus bombs, so the people who lived there fled. Not a single building remained intact. While rebuilding Ukraine is the subject of heated debate inside the country and abroad, Petroshin took matters into his own hands. When the area was retaken from Russian troops later that same year, Petroshin led a campaign to bring the villagers home and to rebuild Zaria, even though his family lost everything too. The houses were destroyed. My own house was also destroyed. The roofs scattered around the yard. We were often shelled with phosphorus bombs, and it's visible that there was a big fire inside the house. Everything burnt inside. Volunteers gifted Petrushin a tent that he set up next to his burnt-down house. He eventually moved back into a room in his house that he managed to repair, just before the harsh winter set in. As Petrushin works to rebuild the rest, his wife and children remain in a nearby city. The tent has been converted into a makeshift warehouse for aid. We had no electricity. We had no water. At first, 20 people came back. There was no power, and we started calling regional utility companies asking to restore the power lines. After some time, we started to have electricity again. Now, 74 families have returned to Zaria, bringing it close to its pre-war population. Some stay in temporary containers, while others have managed to rebuild their homes and barns with materials brought by aid organizations. While the scars of war remain etched across Zaria, like this missile shell entangled in a tractor, the village is slowly coming back to life. Staying in Europe, here are some more top headlines from Russia, France and other countries. Russia today extended the pre-trial detention for an American Wall Street Journal reporter again. A court in Moscow ruled Evan Gerskovich can be held through the end of March. This is the fourth time a court is extending his detention. The hearing in Moscow took place behind closed doors, but a United States Consul General was allowed to attend. Gershkovich was detained last March while on a reporting trip over a thousand miles east of Moscow. He's facing charges of espionage that carry up to 20 years in prison. He denies the charges. Also today, Russia said it is not considering peace talks. A Bloomberg report alleged that President Vladimir Putin was testing the waters with the U.S. for possible talks on ending the conflict in Ukraine. The report cited two anonymous people close to the Kremlin. The report also stated that Russia might consider no longer opposing Ukraine's NATO membership. A Kremlin spokesperson today said the report is wrong and unrealistic. And over to Sweden's NATO bid. The head of NATO today said he expects Hungary to approve it in late February. That's when Hungary's parliament reconvenes after a current recess. This would clear the final hurdle for the Nordic nation to join the military alliance. Hungary is the last NATO country left to ratify Sweden's bid. That's after Turkey's president signed off on the approval yesterday. I spoke with um, Prime Minister uh, Urban of Hungary earlier this week. He very clearly conveyed that he, support, uh, he supports uh, the accession of Sweden into NATO. 
And farmer protests in France are now reaching Paris. Drone footage shows dozens of tractors on a highway between Paris and another major city. This is the first major traffic disruption at the French capital from the nationwide protests. The farmers are demanding fewer environmental regulations. They say it's too costly to follow all of the rules and it's preventing them from earning a decent income. Officials are now rushing to ease tensions with farmers as tractor convoys are expected to paralyze traffic around the capital in the afternoon. The government said it would announce the first steps to address farmers' concerns later today, but it didn't specify what those measures would look like. Coming up, the little helicopter who could has flown its last mission on Mars. Hear what NASA is saying about its historic mission. And take a walk through the storied streets of New York City with us as we get a local tour on some of the sweetest spots on the Upper East Side. And law enforcement in Illinois demonstrates that their work is never finished. After arresting a food delivery employee, an officer makes sure the recipients don't go hungry. We'll show you that and more uh, when we come back. NASA's Little Mars helicopter has flown its last flight. The space agency made the announcement yesterday, saying its mission far exceeded expectations. Descent, landing, touchdown. And spin down. The robot helicopter named Ingenuity is ending a historic mission that went beyond NASA's expectations. Its first aircraft ever to operate and fly on another world. What Ingenuity accomplished far exceeds what we thought possible. Originally intended only as a short-term tech demo, Ingenuity eventually logged 72 flights on Mars. It racked up over two hours of flight time, traveling 11 miles. It soared as high as 79 feet and hit speeds of up to 22 miles per hour. Now the little helicopter is grounded for good after one of its rotor blades became bent or broken. As it was coming down for landing, at least one of its carbon fiber rotor blades was damaged. We're investigating the possibility that the blade struck the ground. This is what the blade looks like. It's a special fiber with a special contour. While the Ingenuity remains standing and in contact with flight controllers, its $85 million mission is officially over. I think President Biden said it best after Ingenuity's first flight. He said, NASA proved once again that with relentless determination and the power of America's best minds, anything is possible. The success of the Ingenuity mission has prompted NASA to add a pair of mini helicopters to a future Mars mission. Next, we'll embark on a delightful tour through the storied streets of Manhattan's Upper East Side, guided by a true New York local, a real estate broker with deep roots in this iconic neighborhood. Join us as we explore the hidden gems and rich history that make the Upper East Side a unique and vibrant part of the Big Apple. Our journey begins with a stroll down memory lane, tracing the city's history back to the 1800s. Oh, wow. That's right. Our guide, Nikki Beauchamp, grew up in New York City. 
She tells us neighborhoods here are steeped in history and culture. There used to be these grand mansions when this was farmland, and some of these mansions still exist, like there's literally one across the street. Our exploration takes us along the renowned Museum Mile, stretching from 82nd to 110th Street. What makes this stretch truly special? These aren't just any museums. They're housed in historic family mansions from the 1800s and 1900s, giving visitors a unique, immersive experience. So not only are you visiting you know, wonderful works of art, you're literally in structures where people used to live. And for people who love the Gilded Age, like, this is where you want to come. And so that's, that's like one of the things. As we continue our tour, Central Park emerges as a local sanctuary. Nikki emphasizes the park's significance beyond its tourist appeal. It functions the backyard for so many New Yorkers. And it's the way a lot of people really stayed sane during the pandemic, just going on walks in the park. Yeah, it's one of the most visited um, tourist destinations in the world, but mostly by locals. Mostly by, <laughs> mostly by locals, but on, on the weekends, you can definitely feel that there are a lot more people coming to visit. She says Madison Avenue's boutiques offer a delightful experience, and Park Avenue, a more serene atmosphere. I love walking up and down Madison Avenue because I love to window shop. I love walking up and down Park Avenue because there's something really interesting about an avenue where there's really just the cars and the people, and there's no trucks really, there's no buses, and it feels like you have stepped away. While the pandemic brought changes to our lives, Nikki says right here in the city, more time at home brought neighbors closer together, fostering a sense of community resilience. I feel like we were almost disconnected from home in some space, in some ways, because we were all so busy and there's so much hustling. And home was like, okay, that's where I sleep. But home is really where you live. And it feels like we're doing more living in our homes and in our neighborhoods than we ever were before. With so many people now working from home, she says it's the local bonds that can be both professionally and personally transformative. You know, the fact that someone could text me and say, hey, you know, it could be someone I went to college with. They could say, you know, do you know anybody in such and such field? Because maybe they're trying to get an introduction or maybe it's an introduction for their kid. Those relationships and those bonds, how do you build those bonds in this new evolution of the world? New bonds bringing new opportunities. New York City really is a collection of small towns. You just have to find your town. This one happens to be mine, but you know. It's at the local level where the magic of the city really unfolds. The best thing about New York is that every neighborhood has its own unique flavor and so much to discover. Where you might just find your place and your people. And in health news, there's a surprising use for grapefruit, lowering blood pressure. Multiple studies are showing the benefits of this bitter citrus. And to find out more, here's Gina Marie in Strong Mind and Body.
fruit comes in white, pink and red varieties. Each type offers a burst of flavour ranging from intensely tart to deliciously sweet. Grapefruits are hybrids of sweet oranges and pomelos. They are thought to have originated in the islands of the West Indies around the 1700s. They arrived in Florida in the early 1800s where they have been cultivated ever since. Grapefruit are now grown predominantly in Florida, Texas, California and Arizona. Loaded with vitamins A and C, grapefruit is a good source of dietary fiber. Grapefruits also contain vitamin B6, magnesium, calcium, theamine and folate. Perhaps most importantly, grapefruit contains potassium. This is vital for controlling heart rate and blood pressure. According to Johns Hopkins Medicine, one grapefruit supplies about 10% of our daily potassium requirements. In addition to lowering blood pressure, studies have shown that grapefruit can help with weight loss, reduce cellulite, beautify the skin, boost the immune system, reduce the risk of strokes and even protect against cancer. High blood pressure or hypertension is a serious condition. It is also a risk factor for heart disease and stroke. According to the American Heart Association, nearly half of Americans over 20 have high blood pressure. The likelihood of having high blood pressure increases as we age. Three quarters of Americans over 65 have the condition. A randomized controlled trial was published in Metabolism. It took 74 overweight adults and split them into two groups. One was given half a grapefruit before each meal. The control group didn't eat any grapefruit. The group that ate grapefruit lowered their blood pressure, lost weight, decreased their weight circumference, and had a decrease in LDL cholesterol. Grapefruits are nutrient-dense superfoods packed with vitamin C. They also support a healthy immune system. If you struggle with high blood pressure, adding grapefruit to your diet may be helpful. You can add it to a salad, use it to make a tangy salsa, or simply slice it in half. Remember, if you are taking medication for high blood pressure or any other condition, speak to your physician. You want to make sure grapefruit won't interact with any particular medication. Illinois' law enforcement say they couldn't let a waiting family go hungry after arresting a DoorDash driver. So a deputy took matters and a big bag of food into his own hands. Here's the video of him making the delivery released by the Kane County Sheriff's Office. Hey. Oh my gosh, you no, we got arrested, but we wanted to make sure you got your food. So you guys have a good night. You guys are amazing. Thank you. The Kane County Sheriff Ron Hain says his deputies always follow through. The sheriff's office told Fox News Digital that the food delivery driver was pulled over for a traffic stop. Police charged him with unspecified misdemeanors. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, please feel free to email us at news.today at ntd.com. Welcome to NTD News Today. Here are our top stories. The International Court of Justice rules on South Africa's genocide case against Israel. Find out what the court is requiring Israel to do and how Israel responds. A business associate of Hunter Biden is testifying before lawmakers in Congress. Find out how he's related to the Biden family's business dealings. The border shutdown in Texas continues. Former President Trump now proposing that other states should send their National Guardsmen to assist the Lone Star State. This as half of all America's governors unite behind Texas together. Promoting candidates that favor Beijing's views, scanning American political domains, even posing as U.S. voters online. A look at how Beijing tried to influence 2022 U.S. midterm elections. 
Russia today extending pre-trial detention for an American journalist for the fourth time. The details on the charges. And a stunner down under. Novak Djokovic is out at the Australian Open. Entity's Dave Martin will join us to discuss. This is NTD News Today, live from our NTD Global Headquarters. Here are Stephania Cox and Chris Beers. Hi, I'm David Lamb, sitting in for Chris Beers. And to begin the show, the E. Jean Carroll defamation trial against former President Trump is wrapping up. Trump was in court briefly as closing arguments began this morning. But he left the courtroom as Carroll's side was offering their closing argument. Carroll's lawyer criticized Trump for leaving, and the judge noted the incident in the record. A lawyer for Trump will offer a closing argument later. The jury is expected to, be, to begin deliberations later this afternoon. They will decide how much Trump has to pay Carroll in damages. The magazine columnist is seeking $10 million. Carroll's side argues that Trump defamed her after she came out with allegations of sexual assault while the Trump side argues there's no evidence that Trump caused Carol harm. A Hunter Biden business associate is testifying in Congress. Rob Walker is appearing for a transcribed interview behind closed doors. He's testifying before lawmakers from the House Judiciary and Oversight Committees. This comes as part of the House impeachment inquiry into President Biden. GOP committee leaders say Walker was, quote, used as a vehicle to receive foreign funds and send a percentage of the money to Biden family members. The lawmakers say Walker was able to do that through his company Robinson Walker LLC. Walker is accused of sending millions to the Biden family from a Romanian businessman and a Chinese energy company. An idle van at an intersection near the White House this morning. Police in Washington, D.C. blocked streets and redirected traffic to investigate the vehicle. A heavy police presence is seen at the site. Officers cordoned off the area with police tape, causing disruption for commuters. The burgundy-colored vehicle was later moved away. The cause of the incident remains unknown. We'll keep you updated on the situation. And the United Nations top court has issued an interim ruling in the case against Israel. South Africa is accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza and asked the International Court of Justice to order a ceasefire. By 15 votes to two, the state of Israel shall, in accordance with its obligations under the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in relation to the Palestinians in Gaza, take all measures within its power to prevent the commission of all acts within the scope of Article 2 of the Convention. In particular, a the court declined South Africa's demand to order an immediate ceasefire, but judges demanded that Israel try to contain death and damage in Gaza. The court decided not to throw out the case and ordered six so-called provisional measures to protect Palestinians during the war. The decision today is only a preliminary one. It could take years for the full case to be heard. Israel rejects the genocide accusation and had asked the court to throw the charges out. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu reacted to the ruling. He said Israel would continue to do what is necessary to defend itself. The Hague Court rightly rejected the outrageous demand to deprive us of this right. 
But the claim itself that Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians is not just false, it is outrageous, and the court's willingness to discuss it at all is a mark of disgrace that will not be erased for generations. The U.S. has temporarily halted funding to the U.N. Relief and Works Agency for Palestine refugees near the, in the Near East, also known as UNRWA. That's due to allegations that some of its employees were involved in the Hamas attack on Israel. A State Department spokesperson says a Secretary of State, Antony, Antony Blinken, has called for a thorough investigation. The U.S. has reached out to Israel for more information and has briefed Congress. UNRWA has already fired staff members allegedly connected to the attack. And in the Middle East, Baghdad has condemned a fresh round of U.S. military strikes on targets inside Iraq, warning that the move will only aggravate tensions in the already volatile region. That's after the U.S. military on Tuesday carried out airstrikes on multiple positions inside Iraq said to be linked to Shiite militia groups. Here to discuss the latest is retired Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, who also previously served as a senior director of strategic planning with the U.S. National Security Council. General, given the recent U.S. airstrikes in Iraq targeting Qatayib Hezbollah, what strategic considerations do you believe were taken into account by the U.S. military in deciding to carry out these strikes, especially considering the broader regional dynamics and the potential for conflict escalation? Well, unfortunately, it doesn't seem like there was any strategic consideration because if there was, they would we would be going after Iran because Iran is the one supporting all of these proxies. And quite frankly, it's just uh, proving, you know, that it's inflaming tensions in Iraq when in reality it's coming from Iran. Even Hamas and Hezbollah are being supported by Iran, as are the Houthis in Yemen. So. I think if we don't go after Iran and really um, go after the heart of the problem, we're just going to continue to create um, tensions in the regions by these attacks that are really just, you know, a, a secondary attack on, um, you know, what what is the heart of the problem, which is the Iranian leadership. And what do you think would be the most effective action there, considering that Iran, you know, may have developed its nuclear weapons capabilities? It looks fairly set to, um, you know, continue sowing unrest in that region. What do you think would be an effective strategy for the U.S.? Well, I think they need to um, really start to think about this in a broader context. It's not just Iran. It's also China. It's also Russia. And so we need to really deal with that as a, as a, as a comprehensive situation, not just, you know, piece by piece. And there are, uh, you know, there are reports of China and Iran's relationship uh, in terms of oil and um, funding, perhaps giving uh, Iran more money to, for its war efforts. Uh, what do you have to say on that front? Well, I mean, you, you really have to, you know, get to the heart of, you know, China's support for Iran, and that that you know is part of the overall um, strategic problem. That needs to be dealt with. Okay, so in terms of a comprehensive approach, what should uh, what should our viewers and voters be watching out for in terms of policies presented by the candidates uh, as this 2024 election progresses? You know, I think it's just somebody that looks at the the broader strategic problems that the United States finds itself in, 
and that we, you know, take a, a different approach. You know, we have been looking at fighting around the world, and I think a lot of these things could be handled with a lot less fighting if we were thinking about how all of these are interrelated, how our own trade policies, economic, financial policies, our geopolitics really, you know, created situations that, that require us to use military force when I think we did a little bit more work on you know, constraining uh, China's ability to use its resources to support Iran, Iran's ability to use its resources um, on, uh, uh, you know, against, uh, you know, the U.S. For forces and against Israel in the Middle East. I think we thought a little bit more about this, and I think we'd, um, we'd uh, have a lot less fighting on our hands, and, and quite frankly, I think we'd be better off as a nation. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. I mean, what uh, specific points do you see being brought up and is there anything that's missing from the discussion at the moment in terms of policies being put forward to address this issue? Well, I think, you know, I think the Trump administration was doing a lot to, to create stability in the Middle East by, you know, bringing together the, the Arab countries and Israel. I think, um, you know, our um, constraining of uh, Iran's ability to inflame uh, the region, I think, was, was good. I also think that you know working to uh, reduce our connection to China was an important uh, factor, and I think working to you know reduce tensions in in Europe, I think with Russia, I think is also important. So I, and there's a lot of things here that I think um, could be done a lot better, and, and quite frankly, that's what's uh, at stake here in this election in 2024. For sure, it is. And just lastly, General, um, the U.S. is saying that it will now start talks to wind down a military coalition to fight ISIS in Iraq. What could be the strategic reasoning behind that, and how could that impact the region, do you think? Well, I, you know, I think, you know, the, our, we're putting our forces in danger, um, you know, by having them in the region where Iran is creating a lot of support for proxy attacks on U.S. forces. So I think we have to rethink our posture in the Middle East if we're not going to go after Iran as the, as the heart of the problem there. All right. Great to hear your, your take on all of this. Thank you so much, Brigadier General Robert Spaulding, U.S. Air Force and former White House NSE Strategic Planning Senior Director. Really appreciate it. Four months after Hamas terrorists killed hundreds at a music festival in Israel, a group of survivors were able to reunite with a local woman who has, had given them refuge. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more on their harrowing story. On October 7th, 88-year-old Holocaust survivor Sarah Jackson found herself sheltering three Israelis. They were fleeing the deadliest attack on Jews since World War II. They went to the front front door, they locked the door, and I have a very big armchair in the corner, and they put the armchair to the door, and we all went into the shelter. I sleep in the shelter. Ahead of International Holocaust Memorial Day, they were reunited for the first time. Ilya Pazatskov recalls the chaos as Hamas terrorists attacked the music festival. We start to hear gunshots, right? We, we, we're just, we, we're right next to a car, we start to hear the gunshots, um, and we laid under the car, right? So the gunshots were coming from everywhere. Pizaltskov and his friends drove to Saad, a nearby kibbutz. They managed to evade Hamas ambushes as they passed bodies strewn along the road. We need to get out of here, we cannot stay here. There are gunshots from uh, all over, all over. Um, so we said one, two, three, then we 
jump to the car, started driving. Uh, when we started driving, we, we, we saw a grenade which fell uh, literally several meters from us. Jackson was four years old when World War II started. Her family went into hiding in Siberia. After years of displacement, they decided to immigrate to Israel in 1949. This uh, last event, I could I, I, I couldn't believe I could I couldn't believe it's happening again. That's why I didn't want to leave my home. An Israeli grassroots initiative brings people together in private homes to commemorate the Holocaust. Survivors and their descendants share their stories with the younger generations. For some, Hamas's attack was a reminder of the atrocities committed by the Nazis. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. This Saturday marks International Holocaust Remembrance Day. The United Nations designated 20, January 27th as Remembrance Day as a way to honor the anniversary of when Allied troops liberated the Auschwitz concentration camp. It was one of many such camps set up by Nazi Germany for the purpose of carrying out genocide and forced labor, mainly against Jewish people. Roughly six million Jews were killed in the Holocaust. On its website, the U.S. Holocaust Museum says we can all mark the day by, quote, sharing the truth of the Holocaust and by confronting anti-Semitism and hate in our daily lives. Coming up, 50 Black Lives Matter protesters are set to receive $10 million after Seattle settles a lawsuit over excessive force. We have that and more. Three strikes and you're out, or behind bars for the rest of your life. Kentucky lawmakers advance a sweeping crime bill. How this bill might stop repeat offenders from committing violent crimes. More in just a moment here on NTD News Today. the border showdown where tensions are mounting between the federal government and the state of Texas. More and more Republican governors from across the nation now say they'll stand behind Texas in its battle against the Biden administration. South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem on Fox News explained why she'll continue supporting the Lone Star State. Governor Abbott has done the exact right thing and I'll drive him more razor wire from South Dakota if I have to for him to do his job. We will be Europe within a year or two if we allow President Biden to continue this invasion of our country. Over six million people have come here illegally. It is time to stand our ground and we'll be down there standing shoulder to shoulder with Governor Abbott. 25 Republican governors releasing a joint statement in support of Texas Governor Greg Abbott. They say the federal government is failing to protect the border, which is why Texas now has to step up. This comes after Abbott officially announced he will not follow the Biden administration's request to vacate the border. Instead, he's claiming the state's constitutional right to defend itself against an invasion. In response, some Democrats have called on Biden to seize control of the Texas National Guard. Former President Trump is also weighing in on the issue. He said other states should now send their National Guardsmen to Texas. That's to prevent the entry of illegal immigrants and to remove them and send them back across the border. Trump said Texas rightly invoked the invasion clause and that current immigration numbers are posing a risk to national security, public safety and public health. He also called on the American people to support Texas. 
$10 million. That's the amount Seattle has agreed to pay 50 Black Lives Matter demonstrators to settle a lawsuit. The plaintiffs accused the police department of using excessive force during the 2020 riots. They were among tens of thousands of people who gathered downtown and in the Capitol Hill area for weeks after the death of George Floyd. During this time, protesters set up the Capitol Hill occupied protest, taking control of a six block zone. To break up the crowds, police used things like flashbang grenades, phone tipped projectiles and blast balls that explode and release pepper gas. The city acknowledged no wrongdoing, but said the case was a significant drain on resources. Harsher penalties for crimes in Kentucky. The state's House advanced a bill that would put repeat offenders behind bars for the rest of their lives. House Bill 5 would require life in prison without the possibility of parole for committing three violent felonies in Kentucky. The bill also aims to crack down on fentanyl dealers who contribute to overdose deaths. It would allow for the death penalty or life in prison without parole for knowingly selling fentanyl if it results in a fatal overdose. The bill is now heading to the Republican-led state Senate. It's part of a sweeping plan to combat crime. Newly released documents show the National Security Agency buys internet data of Americans without warrants. The disclosure came from recent newly unclassified letters made public by Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon. The officials say the NSA has been buying web browsing data from commercial data brokers, including information about the websites Americans visit and the apps they use. Paul Nakaso, the NSA's director at the time, wrote the data does not contain the content of communications. And he said the NSA does not buy cell phone location data or location data generated by car infotainment systems in the U.S. The NSA confirmed in a statement it buys data from private vendors. And Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s campaign is launching a physical workout challenge for voters. This is in response to concerns over President Biden and former President Trump's advanced age. American Values 2024, a super PAC supporting Robert F. Kennedy Jr., is promoting a workout challenge for voters. The goal is to have a healthier America and get Americans to be active for at least 24 minutes a day in 2024. Kennedy is known for being public about his physical workouts. This is while President Biden and former President Trump face criticisms over their advanced age and mental wellness. Recently on the campaign trail, Trump mixed up the names of his GOP challenger Nikki Haley and former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. This led Haley to question Trump's mental fitness. Haley has advocated for mental competency tests for older politicians. He said multiple times that he ran against President Obama. He didn't run against President Obama. These things happen because guess what? When you're 80, that's what happens. You're just not as sharp as you used to be. Trump responded to the criticism, saying that his mind is stronger now than it was 25 years ago, when he was Haley's age, 52. But a few months ago, I took a cognitive test. My doctor gave me. I said, give me a cognitive test just so we can, you know, because you know what the standards were. And I aced it. I also took one when I was in. But I also took one when I was in the White House. Kennedy is 70 years old, while Trump is 77 and Biden is 81. Throughout his presidency, Biden has faced criticisms over his age and mental fitness following gaffes on camera. A contingent election is what happens when no candidate gets a majority in the Electoral College. In this situation, the House of Representatives decides who becomes president. 
and it's only happened three times in American history. Could this be a viable path to the White House in 2024 for independent candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr.? Earlier, I spoke with Epic Times reporter Jeff Lauterbach to find out more. Jeff, thank you for joining us on NTD. Now, presidential candidate Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is running as a independent, and he's hoping for an outright win, as you reported. Now, but there seems to be an alternative path to becoming president. Break that down for us. Well, ideally, he wants to take the traditional route, which is getting or surpassing 270 electoral votes. That's a challenge when you're an independent. Uh, the only independent president technically we've had in American history is George Washington. And that's what RFK Jr. referenced uh, George Washington when he declared as an independent back uh, on October 9th. The other route that hasn't happened since 1825 is called a contingent election. And that's when no candidate reaches 270 electoral votes. It goes to the House of Representatives in each state. So 50, there's 50 states that get one vote each. So this strategy to capture enough electoral votes to send to the House, how likely is it to happen again, according to strategists? Well, most consultants and strategists say that's very, uh, they point to the fact that, uh, and I don't know uh, off the top of my head right now, but I believe Republicans have maybe four more states than Democrats. And so they, they, they think that uh, they would vote for either, you know, each state would vote for the Republican or the Democrat. So in this case, uh, Donald Trump, the likely nominee, and if uh, Joe Biden is the likely nominee for the Democrats, it would be one or the other. But the RFK Jr. campaign believes that because he's getting support from conservatives and uh, moderate Democrats alike and independents, that uh, he can be considered the compromise candidate. So, I mean, about that, what's the prospect of uh, RFK Jr. becoming president when, you know, in comparison to former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden? Well, as RFK Jr. points out at his voter rallies and his fundraisers, the uh, if Trump and Biden are the uh, nominees, they don't have to, they, they're already on the ballot and they have uh, abundant funding from all sorts of ent entities. And uh, as far as uh, RFK Jr., first he has to get, he's trying to get on all 50 states ballots and the District of Columbia. So that's a challenge in itself, he believes will uh, estimates 15 to $18 million. And then there's uh, likely lawsuits to follow by Democrats and Republicans trying to keep them off the ballot. So he has a lot of challenges that uh, even to get to the general election. Jeff, please tell us about the last two times when a contingent election happened in U.S. history. Well, you have to be a history enthusiast and go way back to the 19th century for that. In 1800, it happened between um, Aaron Burr and Thomas Jefferson. And Aaron Burr is more well known for his duel with Alexander Hamilton. That contingent election went to Thomas Jefferson and it took a long time for that to happen. And then uh, 1824, uh, it happened once again. It was decided in January 1825 and that's John Quincy Adams who became president. 
it's interesting because if you look back in the history of independents and third parties running, the last candidate to get electoral votes was George Wallace in 1968. So if this is going to happen for RFK Jr., if he takes that route, it will definitely be history in the making. All right, Jeff Lauterbach, national reporter with the Epic Times. Thank you so much for joining me. Coming up, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan and China's top diplomat are set to meet in Bangkok. What's on the agenda? Taiwan begins extended one-year conscription under Beijing's military pressure. What the island's first recruits have to say about their military service. We'll have the details soon when we return. U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan meeting with China's Foreign Minister Wang Yi in Thailand today. They're expected to discuss U.S.-China relations and Taiwan. This comes two months after President Biden met with Chinese leader Xi Jinping in San Francisco. The two met on the sidelines of the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Summit. During those talks, Biden and Xi struck deals on a number of things, including opening a presidential hotline, resuming military-to-military -military communications, and cracking down on fentanyl production. But Taiwan remains a thorny issue. Beijing claims Taiwan as part of its territory, despite never having ruled it. What goes into Beijing's efforts to influence America? A declassified report about the 2022 midterm elections paints a bold picture. It describes promoting divisive content online, impersonating American voters, and retaliation against U.S. lawmakers. The report comes from the Director of National Intelligence. It was published last December. Let's take a closer look. It said during the 2022 U.S. elections, Chinese intelligence tried to undermine or promote candidates from both political parties. Examples include slandering a U.S. senator online using inauthentic accounts. The report also mentioned media reports of Chinese propaganda arm using TikTok to target candidates from both parties. Their content was able to rack up tens of millions of views in the U.S. The effort has been years in the making. Four years ago, Beijing ordered officials to ramp up efforts to influence U.S. policy and sway American public opinion in China's favor. The report assesses Chinese officials had more room to operate ahead of the midterms, probably because they didn't expect the Biden administration to retaliate as severely as feared in 2020. Congress is a prime target. The report said in 2021, Beijing identified lawmakers to either punish them for their anti-China views or reward them for supporting Beijing. Congress remains a thorn in the side of the Chinese regime. Beijing sees both chambers as the center of anti-CCP activities. Chinese cyber actors also scan over 100 U.S. state and national political party domains. A report from Microsoft found Chinese hackers posed as American voters online. They used artificial intelligence to promote divisive content during the 2022 midterm elections. Another foreigner sent to prison in China. British businessman Ian Stones was sentenced to five years behind bars. The sentence was handed down last year, but Beijing just confirmed the news today. Stones is around 70 years old and has worked in China for decades. He's been detained there since 2018 on charges of illegally selling intelligence to overseas parties. Beijing did not give details about the charges. Beijing has detained a number of foreigners, including Americans. 
American businessman Mark Swedan, accused of trafficking drugs, is now on death row. Also behind bars is Pastor David Lin and Kai Li, a naturalized U.S. citizen born in China. Beijing's anti-espionage law that took effect last year is making things more complicated. The new law expands the scope of what Beijing considers espionage, but without clearly defining the terms, leaving many concerned it could apply to regular business activities. Normal actions such as collecting intelligence on local markets and business competitors may no longer be safe. The law also hands uh, Chinese authorities greater power. They can block suspects from leaving China. They can also search suspects' bags, electronic devices, and property. The U.S. State Department has asked citizens to reconsider travel to China due to the risk of arbitrary detention. Turning to Taiwan, new recruits are kicking off their year-long compulsory military service. Taiwan recently extended its conscription period in response to threats from Beijing. Here's more. Taiwan's military has begun welcoming its newest batch of conscripts. But unlike those who came before who served four months, these young people will spend a year in training. The extension was announced in late 2022 by Taiwanese President Tsai Ing-wen and comes in response to the government's concerns about China's military threat. In recent years, China has ramped up military, diplomatic and economic pressure on Taiwan to assert its sovereignty claim. That has included almost daily Chinese Air Force missions near the island over the last four years. Taiwan's army expects a total of 670 conscripts to join the first batch under the newly extended scheme. One such recruit is 18-year-old Ying Xingxi, who is being dropped off by his parents. I'm a little bit excited. This is compulsory service, and after I complete it, it will not hamper my plans to pursue higher education or a job search. Compared to four months of service, I think I can learn a lot more through serving for one year, and it will help me to hone the skills. For the country, it will provide the needed defense power given that our neighboring country is a big threat to our nation. I'm sure it will be helpful. Once the conscripts have had their papers checked and their hair shaved, they will begin intense training. That includes shooting exercises, combat instruction used by U.S. forces, and operating powerful weapons such as Stinger anti-aircraft missiles and anti-tank missiles. The United States, Taiwan's most important international backer and arms seller, despite the lack of formal diplomatic ties, has welcomed the conscription reform. Yet the period of service in Taiwan is still shorter than the 18 months mandated in South Korea, which faces a hostile, nuclear-armed North Korea. A Taipei-based think tank previously estimated the extended conscription could add an extra 60 to 70,000 manpower annually to the current 165,000-strong professional force in 2027 and beyond. After Taiwan announced the extension, China criticized the move for seeking to use the Taiwanese people as a cannon fodder. Taiwan's government rejects Beijing's sovereignty claims and says only the Taiwanese people can decide their future. This week, the U.S. Navy sailed its first warship through the Taiwan Strait since the island's presidential election. China has protested the move, calling it proactive. To learn more about where things stand between the U.S., China and Taiwan, 
Earlier, I spoke with Colonel Grant Newsham, senior fellow at the Center for Security Policy and author of When China Attacks. Colonel Grant Newsham, thank you for joining us. Now, the Chinese regime has accused the U.S. of, quote, trouble and provocation after the U.S. Navy sailed a warship into the Taiwan Strait. What do you make of this? Well, they've been saying this forever. Uh, they've been complaining vociferously about uh, these sorts of um, naval uh, movements for at least 25 years that I can remember. Uh, they make the complaints, and they'll keep making them the next time we do it. Uh, for now, there isn't a whole lot they can do to stop them. Uh, and that's mostly because they're afraid of the uh, damage they would suffer elsewhere, say, to their international trade, uh, imports of fuel and food, to which they're very vulnerable. Um, that's the state, the state of affairs for now. Play this out into the future, and at some point, they just may feel like they've got uh, the upper hand and that it uh, will be worth actually doing something to a, uh, a U.S. ship. But for now, it's just, just words. I understand you have a background in Asia-Pacific defense. Now, what's the general situation between Taiwan and the Chinese Communist Party, also considering that Taiwan had an election unfavorable to the Chinese regime? Well, well the Chinese Communists have been very clear about what they intend to do, and that is to take Taiwan, either by force or to use pressure to have Taiwan uh, just come into the fold. Um, and I think they know as a result of this election that there is no chance they are ever going to get Taiwan to voluntarily uh, join the People's Republic of China. It's just headed off on a different tangent. These are Taiwanese people who want to be free. So that puts Ty uh, China in a position of either, once again, using force or else just stepping up the coercion uh, to the point that uh, Taiwan has to come in. And as importantly, uh, they, they're counting on an American administration not defending Taiwan the way that it should. Now, a new survey of leading experts from the U.S. and Taiwan from the Center for Strategic and International Studies cast doubt on China's ability to invade Taiwan with its current military strength. What's your, what's your assessment of the CCP's military strength and ability to invade? I think they've got the ability to launch an all-out attack on Taiwan and to think that they have reasonable prospects uh, for success. I am aware of that CSIS report. Now, if you look at the people on it, uh, there's 50-some. Uh, there's maybe six or seven uh, who, say, would, would have a different opinion. Uh, they've chosen people that are going to say, well, Taiwan, Taiwan can't be attacked. The Chinese don't want to. Uh, if they'd added some names to that survey, it would have been a more balanced, I think, more accurate uh, survey. Now, there's another, uh, in other recent reports, CCP leader Xi Jinping has been purging leaders in its own military, the People's Liberation Army, because of rampant corruption. Could this impact China's ability to invade or win a war? Oh, it could, but there's different ways to look at it. I would tend to see that he's actually going to end up with a PLA that is more capable uh, and that is more able to fight a war and to attack Taiwan. Uh, it's, knowing a little history helps. In the 30s, uh, Hitler did the same thing with the Wehrmacht, and people said the same thing, oh, they could never attack anyone now. Well, it turns out they were wrong. In this case, uh, he's getting rid of some dead wood, replacing them with people uh, he can trust and he thinks are better. Uh, but also, he's not affecting, he's not having any sort of harm, doing any harm. 
really to the lower levels where the actual work is done in a military. So I would not uh, count on this as giving us any sort of leeway or any sort of uh, sort of breathing room in terms of Chinese capabilities towards Taiwan. Colonel Grant Newsham, senior fellow with the Center for Security Policy. Thank you so much for your insight and for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And in more China news, Congress is coming after China's largest genomics company. Both chambers pushing a bill to kick it out of the U.S. market. This after warnings that Beijing has been gathering Americans' genetic information, data that can be used to create targeted bioweapons. More details coming tonight at 9.30 on NTD's China in Focus with Tiffany Meyer. Coming up, tennis Novak Djokovic is out at the Australian Open after faltering in the semifinals. NTD's Dave Martin joins us to discuss the player's exit. Scores of orange insects flee the chilly temperatures of Canada and the United States. The lush green forests of central Mexico offer refuge. More shortly here on NTD News Today. And now for your sports news, we're joined by NTD's Dave Martin. Dave, a major upset last night at the Australian Open. So uh, Novak Djokovic lost in, the, lost in the semifinals. What happened there? Yeah, Djokovic really got outplayed by the four seed there, Yannick Sinner. Sinner won in four sets. It was really a lopsided match. I mean, the, the first two sets he won by a wide margin. I'm going to say 12 to 3. He had a match point opportunity in the third. Djokovic was able to hold him off and force a fourth set. But that snapped Djokovic's 33-match winning streak there at the Australian Open. That dated all the way back to 2019. Now, I would say I'm shocked, but you know, after that much dominance, I think you start fighting against yourself a little bit with overconfidence. It can also be kind of a weight on your shoulders. Sinner, though, looked really good, too, I must say. Now, he'll face Daniel Medvedev in the finals on Sunday. If the 22-year-old Sinner wins, he'll be the youngest winner there since Djokovic himself won it back in uh, 2008. And Dave, this weekend, the NFL has their conference championship games to determine the, the Super Bowl matchup. Who do you like there? Well, I like San Francisco to beat Detroit. I mean, the Niners are really a complete team. They've got star powers all over, and they play this game uh, in San Francisco. I don't think it'll be a blowout. Detroit's really too tough for that. Now, in the AFC, I've gone back and forth over this game you know, several times. Ultimately, I think Baltimore is going to beat Kansas City. Now, I've talked about the Chiefs' deficiencies at wide receiver. Pretty much everybody has. They're also coming off an emotional win against Buffalo. Sometimes you get a letdown after those games. I mean, it was a hard, hard-fought victory. So then that would set up a San Francisco versus Baltimore Super Bowl, which would be a rematch of Super Bowl 47 that Baltimore won. Now, Dave, shifting gears to the NHL, the Edmonton Oilers shut out Chicago three to nothing, three to nothing last night, where you know they moved their winning streak to 15 games. Where does this rank in league history? Yeah, they're just the fifth team ever to get to 15 straight wins. The record is 17 by the 1993 Pittsburgh Penguins, who were then led by Mario Lemieux and a 20-year-old named uh, Yarmir Yager. Now, amazingly, Yager still plays professional hockey over in Europe. But anyway, back to Edmonton. In the past, they've been more of an offensive team, but this year they're really winning with defense. They've allowed two goals or less for now 13 straight games. That's a franchise record. Incredibly, despite this streak, they're still only sixth in their own conference in total points. So it's still ways for them to go to get to the top. Right. Great roundup. Thanks so much, Dave, as always. Thank you, guys.
Thank you, Dave. And next, we'll embark on a delightful tour through the storied streets of Manhattan's Upper East Side, guided by a true New York local, a real estate broker with deep roots in this iconic neighborhood. Join us as we explore the hidden gems and rich history that make the Upper East Side a unique and vibrant part of the Big Apple. Our journey begins with a stroll down memory lane, tracing the city's history back to the 1800s. Oh, wow. That's right. Our guide, Nikki Beauchamp, grew up in New York City. She tells us neighborhoods here are steeped in history and culture. There used to be these grand mansions when this was farmland, and some of these mansions still exist, like there's literally one across the street. Our exploration takes us along the renowned Museum Mile, stretching from 82nd to 110th Street. What makes this stretch truly special? These aren't just any museums. They're housed in historic family mansions from the 1800s and 1900s, giving visitors a unique, immersive experience. So not only are you visiting you know, wonderful works of art, you're literally in structures where people used to live. And for people who love the Gilded Age, like, this is where you want to come. And so that's, that's like one of the things. As we continue our tour, Central Park emerges as a local sanctuary. Nikki emphasizes the park's significance beyond its tourist appeal. It functions the backyard for so many New Yorkers. And it's the way a lot of people really stayed sane during the pandemic, just going on walks in the park. Yeah, it's one of the most visited um, tourist destinations in the world, but mostly by locals. Mostly by, <laughs> mostly by locals, but on, on the weekends, you can definitely feel that there are a lot more people coming to visit. She says Madison Avenue's boutiques offer a delightful experience, and Park Avenue, a more serene atmosphere. I love walking up and down Madison Avenue because I love to window shop. I love walking up and down Park Avenue because there's something really interesting about an avenue where there's really just the cars and the people, and there's no trucks really, there's no buses, and it feels like you have stepped away. While the pandemic brought changes to our lives, Nikki says right here in the city, more time at home brought neighbors closer together, fostering a sense of community resilience. I feel like we were almost disconnected from home in some space in some ways because we were all so busy and there's so much hustling and home was like okay that's where i sleep but home is really where you live and it feels like we're doing more living in our homes and in our neighborhoods than we ever were before with so many people now working from home she says it's the local bonds that can be both professionally and personally transformative. You know, the fact that someone could text me and say, hey, you know, it could be someone I went to college with. They could say, you know, do you know anybody in such and such field? Because maybe they're trying to get an introduction or maybe it's an introduction for their kid. Those relationships and those bonds, how do you build those bonds in this new evolution of the world? New bonds bringing new opportunities. New York City really is a collection of small towns. You just have to find your town. This one happens to be mine, but you know. It's at the local level where the magic of the city really unfolds. The best thing about New York is that every neighborhood has its own unique flavor and so much to discover. Where you might just find your place and your people.
Activist group Silvami del Train says construction of the Mayan train in southern Mexico has penetrated a series of ancient underground caves. The group captured footage that showed large steel pillars inside the caves. Video also showed large holes on the cave's floors and ceilings. Activists fear these holes will later be filled up with concrete. The Mayan train is one of Mexican President Andres Lopez Obrador's flagship projects. The initiative aims to boost tourism in the Mayan Peninsula. Environmental activists and scientists argue the construction endangers a delicate underground ecosystem. Tourists trekked on foot towards the Machu Picchu ruins in Peru on Thursday. Protests over virtual ticket sales shut down a train line connecting to the ruins. The protesters marched through the streets and blocked a train track heading to the World Heritage Site. Police escorted tourists as they walked along the tracks. The demonstrators are calling for the end of a contract between the Peruvian government and the Machu Picchu ticket company. And scores of monarch butterflies are escaping the chilly temperatures of Canada and the United States. The orange insects head to the lush green forests of central Mexico every winter. Migratory monarchs travel up to 2,000 miles. The trip south isn't always an easy one for the fragile butterflies. The insects have seen a population decline since the beginning of the 1990s. Some reports suggest the population has stabilized, though. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature has upgraded the species from endangered to vulnerable. That's all for today's news. Thank you for tuning in. Feel free to reach out to us with news tips or feedback at news.today at ntd.com. We'll be back with more on, the, on Monday. Have a great weekend.